Well, needless to say, these last few weeks have been an exciting season for the Adams family. Yesterday was quite a day. Kathy and I have now witnessed the birth of our first two grandchildren. Colt is 18 days old, and I figured it out. Quinn is now 18 hours old. (laughs) You know, we were warned by many of you now what a thrill it would be to be grandparents. And you were right. The only tinge of sadness we've experienced has been that not all of our family and friends joined us for the births. Time and distance kept some folks away. But there's a remedy for that. Oh, yes, there is. It's called a birth announcement. Here's the birth announcement for the newest two Adamses, Colton and Quincy. There it is. Notice... There's the logistics and the statistics. And then notice the names, the linguistics there at the bottom. Colton. You know that means son of handsome grandpa. (laughs) And Quincy, that means God loves grandpas. Did you know that? (laughs) A birth announcement lets people know how it all came out. First, there's the logistics. There's the time and the location of the birth. Second, there's the statistics, the weight and the height of the child. And then there's the linguistics, the name and its meaning. You know, birth announcements inform distant friends and relatives of a new arrival. And this is exactly what God did. He would have liked it if you and I had been there that first Christmas morning. For the birth of his son Jesus. He would have liked it. But due to some time and some distance, that really wasn't possible. That's why God has sent us all our birth announcement. The Bible lets us know how it all came out. Today we're going to take a look at Jesus' birth announcement. Let's turn first to Galatians chapter 4. Here we get the logistics. The time and the place of Jesus' birth. If you don't have your Bible handy, we'll put it on the big screen. Let me read with you. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Here Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and he says this. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice again those words. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Implied is that the birth of Jesus was planned out in advance. You know, the Bethlehem birth wasn't just a random event. It was an example of careful family planning. Hey, Jesus' birth, was born, he was born on a very precise, predetermined timetable. Centuries earlier, even before the foundation of the world, God had prearranged His birth, its timing, and its location, and even its participants. 2,000 years before Jesus was born, God chose parents for His Son. Jesus was to be of the stock and lineage of the nation Israel. 
God chose a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And through his seed, he promised to bless the nations. Over the centuries, God renewed that promise to Abraham's descendants. First to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and to Judah, and to David. And then all the way down the trunk of that family tree to Mary and to Joseph. God impregnated his people with a promise. And then he told them to wait and believe. Yet as all parents will testify, it's tough to wait on a baby, isn't it? Any mother will tell you 40 weeks, 280 days is a very, very long time to be great with child. Ladies, all I can say is just be glad you're not a rhinoceros. Did you know that lady rhinos are pregnant for 450 days? 15 months? Hey, be glad you're not a mama elephant, okay? A pachyderm stays pregnant for 645 days. That's nearly two years. Oh, it's tough to wait on a child. And yet imagine the nation Israel. She was pregnant for 2,000 years. That's the length of time between the promise made to Abraham and the coming of the Messiah. This is why the writer to the, to the Hebrews, he speaks of Israel's challenge. He writes this, Do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice it takes faith and patience to inherit God's promises. You know, rarely are the promises of God fulfilled instantaneously. There's almost always a wait between the giving and the receiving of a promise. That's why faith and patience are required. Faith never gives up. Patience never tires out. This is true of all God's promises, but especially the one that was fulfilled on that first Christmas morning. Jesus was born, as Paul writes, in the fullness of time. In other words, right on schedule. Not a day too soon, not a day too late. Jesus arrived on God's due date. Israel was told to wait, but not without a date. Like any OBGYN, God calculated a due date. He pinpointed the exact day of Messiah's appearance. My daughter-in-law, Jessica, she had little Quincy on her due date, December the 24th. But did you know that only about 3% of babies born are born on the due date? And yet God, he was very precise. He pinpointed the exact date. Not the day of Jesus' birth, but the day of his culmination, the culmination of his earthly ministry. Daniel chapter 9 calculates the time frame of God's promises to Israel. Daniel speaks prophetically of a 483-year period between the command to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. If you start at that command, the date of that decree, March the 14th, 445 B.C., and if you count off those 483 years, it's actually 173,880 days. You'll arrive... At the date, April the 6th, 32 A.D. Jesus had to be born and ready for this monumental moment. Here was the day he rode his donkey 
into the city of Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. On this day, Jesus presented himself as king, as Israel's king. We call that day Palm Sunday. It was Jesus' unveiling. It was the only public demonstration he ever orchestrated. The promise predicted in Daniel chapter 9, 500 years in advance, was fulfilled to the exact day. As Galatians tells us, Jesus was born in the fullness of time. And yet not only was the time of his birth and later arrival predicted, but so was its location. God not only had a pre-planned time, he also had a pre-planned place. You know, when a couple becomes pregnant, they choose a location for the birth. Usually it's a hospital close to home. But that doesn't mean that the baby's always going to cooperate. You know, we've all heard of those stories of babies being born in the backseat of a taxi cab. Or maybe alongside the road en route to the hospital. I heard of a mom who actually made it to the hospital in time, but just not to the delivery room. Her baby was born in the hospital's coat closet. Can you believe it? Amazing thing, really. They say for the rest of his life, the kid was just hanging around. Oh, my. But God's son was delivered exactly where God planned. His birthplace was also predicted long in advance. 700 years beforehand, the prophet Micah predicted that Messiah would be born in old little town of Bethlehem. That's why God had the Caesar up in Rome order that census. Demand for all the world to go to their hometowns to be registered. It took a royal decree to get Joseph of Nazareth to load up his pregnant wife of nine months and embark on that hundred-mile journey south toward his hometown of Bethlehem. It's interesting. The emperor ordered the census to inflate his own ego. Little did he know that the king of all kings had manipulated him to fulfill his will and fulfill that prophecy that had been made by Micah. See, God had a place and a time for Messiah to be born. That's why it shouldn't surprise us that God has a time and a place for all his works. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And he has made all things beautiful in its time. One of the first lessons we learn in our Christian life is that our time and our place isn't always God's time and God's place. Often God's miracles have to incubate before they're ready to hatch. Sometimes a step back over here means I can take two steps forward over there. God doesn't always act on our cue. He works when and where He chooses. And this is why we need faith and patience to inherit God's promises. You see, faith gets us in position to receive from God. But then patience holds our ground until the blessing comes. Remember, faith never gives up. And patience, it never tires out. Well, we have the logistics of this birth, but we're also given the statistics of the child. His height and his weight. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 make an incredible statement regarding the baby born in Bethlehem. We're told for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head 
of all principality and power. Isn't it funny how we make a big deal over a baby's weight and height? Now I understand why adults try to keep track of their weight. It's been said the challenge of adulthood is not living within your means, but living within your seams. And I suppose that children also need to somewhat watch their weight. But for crying out loud, if there's one time in your life when weight shouldn't be a factor at all, it should be when you're a baby. And yet, what's the very first thing that gets asked after a baby's born? Everybody wants to know, how much did he weigh? How tall was he? I'd love to see adults treat each other the way we treat babies. I mean, what if I came home from eating lunch with somebody here at the church and came home and told Kathy, I said, honey, I ate lunch today with a guy from the church. He's 183 pounds, 11 ounces, and he's 72 inches long. She'd think I'd flipped. But with babies, man, the statistics, they count. It's been said having a baby is like catching a fish. After you haul it in, you can brag about its height and weight. And so it was with the baby born of the virgin. Even today, after Jesus is now all grown up, we're still proud of the Savior's stats, his height and his weight. Not his physical measurements, but his spiritual statistics. You see, weight is the measure of a person's character and qualities. You know, the actor in the play with the complex personality is often referred to as the heavy. Weight speaks of identity, whereas height stands for a person's destiny. We often say, oh, he stands tall, or she stands head and shoulders above her peers. That's speaking of accomplishment. And in this sense, there has never been a baby who weighed more or who stood taller than the child born that first Christmas. Here in the verse I read, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, this little baby gets weighed and gets measured. Verse 9 places him on the scales and weighs him. Verse 10 measures his height. Verse 9 tells us, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Greek word translated fullness is the word pleroma. This was a technical, theological term that was used in Greek philosophy. It was the essence or the substance of God. In other words, pleroma was the stuff that makes God, God. The divine substance. And there were false teachers living in Colossae who said that God had sort of spread out his pleroma. That there were many incarnations of God. That God was represented by many different spokesmen. That his spirit and his nature resided in various people in various places. According to these Colossians, the pleroma had been sprinkled out among the angels and was found in nature and was even embodied among certain holy men. These false teachers taught that God could be found in all things. And thus they concluded that there was nothing really unique or special about Jesus. Oh, since God had scattered the pleroma across the religious spectrum and had sort of diced himself up among many different luminaries, Jesus was just one recipient. But this is where Paul puts his foot down. This is where Paul objects. He becomes adamant. 
He says, oh no, all of the pleroma, all of the fullness of the Godhead is found in bodily form in the person of Jesus. The pleroma, the totality of God, all that makes God, God, came to earth in the person of Jesus. The Almighty became little. He was born a baby and laid in barnyard straw. This was a heavy baby. Remember in the Old Testament, God had one residence on the earth. The temple there in Jerusalem. It was the one promised place where God was sure to be found. God resided there in physical and visible form. The Hebrews called this supernatural manifestation of God the Shekinah, or literally, the glory. Did you know in Hebrew, the word glory, it means heaviness. The glory of God is the heaviness of God, the weightiness of who God is. Ezekiel 10 verse 4 referred to God's glory in the temple as the brightness of the Lord's glory. And it's interesting, this is the same term that the writer of Hebrews uses to describe Jesus. For Jesus is the brightness or the radiance or the heaviness of God. When Isaiah refers to the baby in Bethlehem, he calls him Emmanuel or God with us. Did you know that on that first Christmas, God replaced that Old Testament temple? He held a ribbon-cutting ceremony on a new temple. No longer would God occupy buildings of stone. From now on, God occupied the body of a baby. God's presence, His glory, His heaviness dwelt within that baby born in Bethlehem. God came in human flesh. and All His glory resides in Jesus. Psalm 72 verse 19 commands, Let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Isn't that interesting? The glory of God spreads out. It sloshes over the edges. It sort of fills up the whole universe. Can you imagine? But now Paul says in Colossians 2 that this vast glory has been compressed into a tiny package. All the heaviness and brilliance of God was compacted and compressed into the fragile frame of a baby. The voice of God that roared and that spoke the universe into existence was reduced to the slightest breathings of a baby. Hey, Jesus was not only God incarnate or in the flesh. Jesus was glory concentrated. The other day I was feeding my grandson Colton. That's a lot of fun right there. And it reminded me of an episode with my daughter Natalie. Not exactly my finest moment in parenting. Kathy was out and about. It was up to me to feed little Nat, and so she gulped down eight ounces of formula, the whole bottle. Got the complimentary burp. I put her down in the crib. But a few minutes later, I heard some awful gurgling noises coming from the room. I ran up to the crib, and there I discovered that she'd upchucked all eight ounces of formula. Oh, my. I cleaned her up and nestled her back in and got her comfortable again. And I wondered, what did you do wrong? What in the world did I do wrong? Well, later that night, I discovered my mistake. 
I looked over in the trash can at that can of Similac that I'd opened, and there on the front of the can read the words, Mix 4 to 1. Yep. I had overdosed my little girl on quadruple strength Similac. I hope she's forgiven me. But here's my point. Concentrations are potent. Things can get heavy. And when they get heavy, they're hard to handle. You remember when Moses met God on Mount Sinai. That was a heavy experience. He was shrouded with divine glory. The mountain spoke and quaked and trembled. It was a heavy moment. And it is always a heavy moment. It is always a weighty experience when we come to Jesus. For He is the brightness, the heaviness of all God's glory. You see, once you realize just how heavy Jesus is, you realize you have to bow under the weight of His glory and under the weight of His authority. Years ago, an English professor was discussing the world's great literary figures. He narrowed his list down to two names, Jesus and Shakespeare. And then he told his class, the major difference between these two men is that if Shakespeare came into this room, we'd all stand to honor and respect him. But if Jesus Christ were here, we would all humbly bow and worship him. That's the difference. When you vacuum the house, you know, there are pieces of furniture in your house that are so heavy, you don't try to move them, you just work around them. The china cabinet or maybe the water bed. And likewise, Jesus is too heavy to be moved. You can't just slide him around. You can't just push him aside. You can't slip by. He's too heavy for you to move. Everyone has to deal with Jesus. All that we do and think needs to be organized and arranged around Him. You see, it's up to you to accommodate Jesus, not for Jesus to accommodate you. Jesus is the heavyweight. And Jesus will one day return to this earth. On that day, He'll throw His weight around and He'll demand all of our allegiances. See, Jesus is not just the heaviest baby of all time. But he's also the tallest. <laughs> Even as an infant, Jesus towered over the other 77 billion people who occupied this planet. Verse 10 in Colossians 2 measures his height. We're told he is the head of all principality and power. In other words, he is head and shoulders above all other authorities. Jesus died and he rose and he ascended to his Father in heaven. And now God has placed all things under his feet. There are no limits to his jurisdiction. Even you are under his oversight. Emperor Napoleon once stated, I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself and Caesar and Alexander have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. This is why the Bible labels that baby in the manger King of Kings. There was a Babylonian ruler named Nebuchadnezzar, quite a guy in his own day, he had a big reputation. This Nebuchadnezzar, he saw an image which represented the kingdoms of man. And then he saw a stone strike this image and it crumbled before him. 
the dream got interpreted and it was discovered that the stone was Jesus, was the Messiah. And that Jesus' kingdom would replace the kingdoms of this world. That is still true. That's still the ultimate end of this planet. The kingdoms of man will be replaced by the kingdoms of Jesus. Jesus stood so tall that Zacharias called him the day spring or the sunrise. Did you know Jesus stands above the horizon? He is the dawning of every new day. No one stands taller than Jesus Christ. And Paul concludes, we are complete in Him. Do you know what this means? This means that to be accepted by God and to get to heaven, you have to come through Jesus Christ. No one is complete apart from Jesus. In other words, the babe of Bethlehem is so tall that if you stand on His shoulders, you can even reach heaven. If you try to climb there on your own, you'll find that it's too high to climb. Only when you stand on Jesus' shoulders can you get to heaven. Only through Christ can you rise from the ashes and stand tall before God. Well, we've, we've covered the logistics and the statistics, but when you look at a birth announcement, there's also the linguistics. There's that name and its meaning. And in here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21... Here we find some light on this baby's name and its meaning. The angel told Joseph, And Mary will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. One of the fun things about having a baby is getting to choose the name. Here are the five most popular baby names in 2010, straight from the Social Security Administration. You ready for them? We'll start with the girls, Isabella, Sophia, Olivia, Emma, and then Ava. Here's the top five most popular boys' names, Sandy. No, no, not really. I, I wish. No, it's Jacob, Ethan, Michael, Jaden, and then good old William. You know, some parents go with a garden variety name. Other parents get more exotic. Did you hear recently, Julia Roberts, she named her twins Phineas and Hazel. They'll, they'll thank her for that later, trust me. Hey, the two most common names in all the English language are John and Smith. Put them together and you get good old John Smith. It's a common name. Did you know there are 39,000 John Smiths in England? There's 225 John Smiths in the Atlanta phone book. I counted them. Understand, when God named his son, he gave him the Hebrew equivalent of John Smith. Yes, he did. The name Yeshua, or in the English, Jesus, it was a common name. I'm sure it was number one on the baby list for the year 4 B.C. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And since all Hebrew girls longed to birth the Messiah, they would often name their children Jesus. This is why in his adult life, the Savior went by the designation Jesus of Nazareth. That differentiated him from all the other Jesuses running around at the time. Certainly over the last 2,000 years, our Lord Jesus has done much to distinguish himself. You no longer have to refer to his hometown for people to understand who you're talking about. 
Folks all around the world today recognize this name, Jesus. Just say Jesus or Jesus or Jay-Z. And trust me, no one will ask you, Jesus who? Today, his name invokes strong emotions. Some folks hear his name and their face lights up. They get excited. They love him so. They reverence him and honor him. Other people, though, you say his name and you can tell they mock and they disdain his name. Still others are embarrassed or feel ashamed when they hear his name. What emotion swells up in you when you hear the name Jesus? It reminds me of the old hymn. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. The Bible tells us no other name carries as much authority and garners as much respect as this name. Philippians 2 verse 10, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Acts chapter 4, Peter says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Did you know that Jesus is heaven's password? Parents choose names for different reasons. Maybe they name their child after a relative. Or some parents just like the sound of the name or maybe the rhythm of the name. Other parents, they scrutinize the meaning of the name. I think that's what my parents did. I, I think the name Sandy's Old English for young-looking grandpa. Some names have become an indicator of a child's future. Well, in Bible times, the giving of a name carried great meaning. Such was the case with Jesus. The angel told Joseph to name the boy Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Think about that. When God gave us a gift, he gave us a Savior. <laughs> of all that God could have given us for Christmas. I mean, he shipped us a Savior. Humans are not actually hard to buy for. You realize that. It's not like we don't have any needs. Oh, my. God could have sent us an ecologist to deal with global warming or a family counselor who could stop the spiraling divorce rates. Or he could have given us a medical researcher who would come with a cure for cancer or a sociologist with ways to alleviate starvation and disease. Or he could have sent us a diplomat to bring peace to this war-torn planet. Or perhaps an economist to solve the debt crisis and create some new jobs. Or an educator to help underachieving students. Or a psychologist who could counsel away all of our stress and depression. Oh, we have so many needs. But God didn't send us an ecologist or a counselor or a researcher or a sociologist or a diplomat or any of the others. He sent us a Savior. He sorted out all of our ills and He determined our greatest need. It's been said, at the heart of all our problems is the problem in our hearts. Sin is at the root of all our other maladies. Sin is our arch enemy. It's our rebellion and our selfishness that keeps us alienated from God. You see, if only I could tap into God, 
then he could clean up the mess I've made of my life. But sin makes it impossible to log on. Sin blocks the link between God and humans. Take two magnets, for example. Point both ends of the magnets toward one another, the north ends of the magnet toward one another, and try to push them together. They'll repel each other. There's an invisible force that keeps pushing them apart. Likewise, sin is an invisible force that keeps you from connecting with God. It's the sin in your heart that keeps pushing you away from God. And there's only one solution. As with those magnets, the answer is to turn one of the ends around. You've got to turn it around. And this is what needs to happen for you to connect with God. You need to turn around. Oh, the Bible uses a term for this. calls it repent. But all it means is to turn. When you confess your sin and, and hate your sin and desire to overcome your sin and get tired of your sin, when you turn from your sin, the Savior forgives you. And He sends His Spirit to live inside you. And His Spirit becomes a magnetic force that now draws you to God. You see, once the sin is dealt with, God then goes to work on all your other problems. But, but here's the deal. The man who wants God's healing and wants God's help without dealing with his sin is like the patient who goes to the doctor to get treated for the symptoms rather than for the disease. You see, too many people, they want God's help, but they're unwilling to address the real issue. Oh, we hate our loneliness and our despair and our losing battle with lust and our financial problems and all our broken relationships. But our first step toward getting the help that we need is gaining access to God. And this only happens when we repent. When we turn and humble ourselves and turn from our sin and turn to the Savior. That's when it all starts. You see, turn to Jesus, <laughs> and he takes it from there. Hey, Jesus is a great Savior. Jesus is no part-time Savior. You don't have to worry about Jesus. It's not just a hobby for him to save folks. He doesn't just save people on the side. Oh, no. Jesus is a specialist. He knows this job inside and out. Jesus is a Savior extraordinaire. He gets out the grimiest grime and the dirtiest dirt. He can straighten out even the most twisted people. I've heard it said, I have a great need for Christ, but I have a great Christ for my need. And this is what Christmas is all about. As the angel proclaimed to the shepherds, born unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 2,000 years ago, in a distant land, a special child was born. And since it was impossible for you and I to be present, God sent us a birth announcement. It informs us of the logistics, the time, and the location of his birth, that he was born in the fullness of time. It informs us of the child's statistics, his weight and his height, and oh, he was a heavy baby, he stands tall. And it informs us of his linguistics, his name and its meaning. For God announces to all men everywhere on this day and every day the birth of his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And once you receive a birth announcement, 
it's customary to send a gift, isn't it? I mean, that's the proper protocol. You respond to a birth announcement with a gift. Hey, you've taken care of everyone else on your Christmas list this year. Do you have a gift for the Savior? Do you have a gift for the Savior this morning? I'll tell you what He wants. He wants you. He owns everything else. All He doesn't own right now is you. Will you give Him your life? Will you open up your heart to Him today? Have you trusted Him with your life? Have you asked for His forgiveness? Did you know that today could be your time and your place to surrender to Jesus? Jesus is heavy enough to support you. He's tall enough to get you to heaven if you trust Him. And He specializes in what you need most. Hey, you're a sinner. And He's a Savior. Ask me, and that's a perfect fit. <laughs> If you'll humble yourself, if you'll come to Jesus today.